Can you all hear me okay? Yeah, okay, good. I'm Carol Spears. I am a general surgeon, and I've um, served in Kenya and am now in um, UAE, United Arab Emirates, in the Middle East. And so I'm just going to be sharing today a little bit of some of the common surgical conditions there and, and, and sort of trying to give you a feel for um, some of the similarities and the differences in, in the regions of the world where I have just a little bit of experience. Before we start, let's just pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your grace and Thank you, God, for this conference and for the chance just to pull away for a while, God, and to to hear about all that you are doing around the world. Lord, we so desire to be your light and a reflection of your love wherever you have us, Lord. We just pray that you would use us to help draw people to yourself. And Lord, as we talk today, I just pray that my words would be for your glory and your honor and yours alone. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, a um, couple of different sections to this talk today. The first part is primarily about um, what does it look like to serve somewhere and, and, and what are some of the things that you have to weigh and contrast as you look at where God may want you to be and what are some of those qualities of, of being successful as you serve. I'm still a learner. I've only worked in, in a couple of different places, but I've, I've been exposed to a broader area of missions, and so I'd love to share what, what I've learned along this journey. I appreciate some of these pictures that came from my colleagues um, in, in Kenya, Dr. Russ White and Dr. Mike Chop. Um, there's a need for surgeons around the world, just like there's a need for other types of doctors around the world. And even in all of the literature and, and from the World Health Organization and all, there's more of a recognition that surgery is as important as counteracting some of the infectious diseases and having access to things like C-sections and appendectomies and all of that um, is needed around the world and there's not enough surgeons. So while you're here at GMHC, if you're at the stage of training where you're looking at what what does God want me to do and how what's my role going to be, take advantage of all of the people that are here over there in those exhibit halls and um, any of us who who you may cross paths with. Um, we're happy to share our experiences and to talk further about uh, how God has worked in our in our lives and that's a big key is trusting God's plan it may look a little different than your plan mine certainly did and I'm going to share a little bit of of my story with you just to kind of drive that point home and how can you be successful whether you go for short term somewhere and serve two weeks a month two months or whether you go and plant your life somewhere well some of those characteristics I think are the same Really loving Jesus with all of your heart and, and just desiring to be as much like him as you can be. And that means a, a, a level of humility, of being a servant, of being compassionate and showing his love. And some days for all of us, that's easier than other times. 
um, being childlike, be eager to learn and ask questions and comfortable when you don't know something and, and you need to ask because you're in a different environment. And show your awe, show your enthusiasm when you go somewhere new and you're seeing things for the first time because those people that see it for the first time, it brings joy to people who've seen it 500 times when they're getting to share it with someone new. Be flexible. Be flexible, be flexible, be adaptive because, um, you know, most people that go and serve overseas, they've got quite a few leadership um, characteristics to them. But in every role and in every location, you won't be a leader. And so being willing to be flexible and adapt, hold things loosely, encourage those around you. If you are there serving short term and you see things that are admirable, then point those out to the folks that are there and try your best to just relax and enjoy it and leave the outcomes of whatever it is that you're doing up to the great physician, whether they're medical or whether they're spiritual. When you get to a new place, really get familiar with it. Get familiar with the people. With If you're going for surgery, you want to know what the operating room looks like, what the facilities are, the capabilities are of both the nursing staff and the anesthesia staff. You really want to have those things planned out because you may be used to doing things, you know, ten times a week back home with your regular team, but you might not have that when you're visiting somewhere. So get familiar with the equipment and the people even the supplies and consumables that are there. Greet everybody. If you're in the OR, you know, say, I'd like to know who everybody's here and what is your role. And just do that with a smile on your face so that you can feel comfortable that you know. So my story is a little bit different than some others. It's a very uh, non-traditional route to, to medicine and to surgery. I got out of school and went to work in the business world in telecommunications and wanted to climb that corporate ladder and be successful and make money. I was the daughter of a minister and my mom was a school teacher and I'd given my life to Jesus at an early age. But as I got into that worldly success and and moved away um, to another part of the country, I really saw that I got further and further away from the Lord. And it grieves me, those lost years now. But a friend of mine, my best friend since I was 10 years old, um, uh, wrote me a letter. And she said, who have you become? You're no longer somebody I can call my best friend. And so that's what God used to break my heart, to get me on my knees, to draw me back to himself. He always takes us back no matter what we've done. He always gives us second chances. And I was just prayerful that my friend would. And I stayed up all night trying to call Nigeria where she was serving as a nurse, working at a hospital with some surgeons, raising her family. And her husband was a seminary professor there in Nigeria. Finally got her on the phone, and we started planning a trip for me to go and visit her. So what I thought was going to be a vacation trip to celebrate, I was getting through with an MBA, and I went around at graduation telling everybody, yay, I don't have to go to school ever again. Little did I know, in about six weeks, I'd be in Nigeria, and God would call me to go to medical school. And so one other point about that, from the time he called me to go to medical school, and I was 31, so I was going to completely retread and retrain 
it was 14 and a half years until I landed in that plane in Kenya and went to Tenwick Hospital. And so I just encourage all of you who are in that journey of college and medical school and residency and working for a year or two before you go, you, it, it's not about that destination. It's about that journey and being who God wants you to be all along the way and being that salt and that truth and that light wherever you are today. So he enables us. If he calls us to do these impossible things, then he is going to enable us. So started all over. I went to medical school, thought I'd do anything but surgery. What did I love more than anything else? It was surgery. So I went to the University of Kentucky, ended up taking a year out during my residency training and spending that in Kenya because they needed people to go in the lab. And that ended up just kind of counting as a research year for me. And as I went to this area of the world, um, I, I felt like God was tugging at my heart. And, and during that year, truly felt called to a, a long-term career as a medical missionary. And so I went to Tenwick Hospital. For those of you that are going to soon be in the phases of having to turn in a match list for where you go to residency, someone, um, as I was weighing that decision, advised me, just go and train as broadly as you can. And maybe that looks like that's going to be a university um, training program for you. Maybe your situation is different. It would, it, it might, you might need a different type of preparation. But I'm glad I got that advice. I'm glad I went to a university training program that had really broad training because nothing could have prepared you, um, for all the things that you saw in 2007 and 8 in Africa before the Lord sent us other helpers and other specialists. And so I think, <clears throat> Um, trying to to be prepared for all opportunities is good while you're in the training process. And just commit yourself to doing the best job that you can do during that training. I didn't know that, that when I applied to residency that I would be someone who would start a residency training program. But a year after we got to Tenwick... Um, our, our surgeons there in, in um, partnership with the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons started a residency training program. And on the, the left there, you see our first two residents who Agneta used to describe herself as she was willing to be the guinea pig because little did we know if it would be successful or not. But God sent us those two residents. We grew and God gave us his favor, his blessing. He called the residents that he wanted in that training program, and soon it grew not only general surgery, but also orthopedic surgery. And in 2019, in January, this is what our department looked like. This is what the graduates and the residents looked like at graduation time. And at that point, we had 16 graduates, and five of them came on to staff there at Tenwick Hospital to serve and to teach and to continue giving back what they had been given during their training program. Several years before this, God had started putting on my heart a new dream and a new vision. And it certainly wasn't that I was unhappy where I was, but he was calling me and giving me a love to go and serve Muslim women. 
And it started way back when I was a resident there in 2002 and 2003 with this patient who came to our hospital. Her name is Halima, her daughter-in-law, Fadija. She had esophageal cancer, and she came there because my colleague, Dr. White, was doing amazing things with patients with esophageal cancer. And she somehow just God gave me such a, a connection to her and a burden for her and, and a realization that she didn't know Jesus. And I remember my awkward attempts at trying to, to give her a good news Bible and to pray over her. Um, and so way back in the early days, God was starting to plant that love. When I got back in 2007 and eight, this same patient came back. And so I... I feel like she was somehow very much connected to what ultimately became a calling for me to go to serve in an area of the world where people don't know Jesus and where they don't have access to a church or Christian church or Christian resources. This is a little bit of an older chart now, but from Joshua Project, all that red section there, there's, there are not people that know Jesus. It's not a replicating church and access to Christian resources. So I felt God calling me to that part of the world, to the Arabian Peninsula, um, and ended up going to Kennett Hospital, which was formerly Oasis Hospital. It's a, not a teaching hospital like I worked at in Kenya, but there's over 200 beds. It's primarily women and children there that we care for. We do care for men as well. We have an urgent care center that sometimes men come through. There's over 3,500 births annually. Um, this hospital has just a rich heritage and story, and God has given it favor. And so we're able to function as a Christian mission hospital in our country, and we desire to honor God and to show that love of Jesus. One thing I will also point out, just for any of you that are planning and going and serving, you know, Going to new places is going to be hard. And sometimes that's going to change you more than maybe the impact you make. And it refines us and it purifies us. And so new country, new hospital, new colleagues, new ways of doing things, new electronic medical record systems. That was the big one for me when I went to my current assignment. New culture and language. Um, you just have to be patient with yourself and give yourself grace. You know, God tells us in Scripture, He gives us more and more grace, and we're supposed to show that back to ourselves when we make mistakes or when we can't learn the language quickly enough or when we, you know, struggle in various ways. God is faithful. Remember His faithfulness. Remember your call and, and that He um, called you to be there. And in His power, He makes your weaknesses His perfection. Um, and just be grateful. And be light and be loved. So those are the things that we desire um, in our area of the world. There are some similarities. No matter where you are, it's a privilege to be able to be in medicine and to care for patients. And to be with them during their vulnerable times, it's a, it's a privilege like very few people get to have. And we just have to trust God for his wisdom, his provision, and for the outcomes of the of the patients that we care for. You know, we always go to serve others, but I think often we are the ones who are blessed. 
Um, what I wanted to try to do as we look at some of the similarities and then some of the differences is to, to show you in Africa and in, uh, in the Middle East from my experience what I see, not in an evaluative way, but just to inform you as you prepare where it is in the world that God might have you to be. In Africa, it's usually a little bit easier to get licensed as a medical professional and that professional and then that makes it easier for you to go in short term serve. Um, you can go short or long term in most places in Africa. You can even go as a volunteer. Um, and they need all disciplines. All service lines are important. In the Middle East, licensing takes a little bit longer. It's a little bit more extensive and maybe more expensive and it's um, heavily regulated. It's and so mostly you only have long-term opportunities to go and to serve. It takes more preparation to get there. You need a sponsor or an employer to be able to get the appropriate visas and approvals to um, come into the country and to work. And um, there are, are many options in these areas, but specifically for specialty trained people. In our country, the highly skilled uh, interventional radiology, robotic surgeons, bariatric surgeons, the, the highly skilled and specialized areas, there's a great need. Access to care is different. In Africa, there's limited access to high-quality health care, and not everyone is insured, and even if they are insured, the, the <clears throat> insurers often don't reimburse that well to the hospitals, and there's struggles there. There's less regulatory demands and restrictions in Africa. In the Middle East, there's many options for very high-end um, and high-quality health care. And insurance is required in most of the Middle East countries. And there are many regulatory demands. And the, the thing to keep in mind, though, is that you may be the only Christian physician that your patient ever sees. And so having something be different about you and about the way you interact with them can make a profound impact. We see that because of the people who founded our country, our, um, our hospital, came from America as Christian medical missionaries. And so in, in our part of the world, there's a real openness and receptivity to that because they remember how they were loved and they remember how they were treated way back 60 years ago when our hospital started. In um, these two areas of the world, there's differences in patient expectations. In Africa, there's long waits. They may walk a long way to come to the hospital. Um, they may be, our hospital's in a rural area, there was no appointment system. Everybody came at 8 or 9 in the morning and they just waited until they were seen. Um, there's not usually specialists available, although that is changing and there are more and more now available. The hospital is kind of the last resort. They've often been to traditional healing and many other aspects of trying to get help before they come to a hospital. There's kind of low expectations and, a, and an acceptance of the outcomes in Africa and my experience, and there's a low overall health awareness and health education. In the Middle East, there's really a, a patient expectation for quick and immediate access to care, and they want specialists to be available um, without referrals, and they want to seek 
opinions from many different doctors. You know, sometimes I'll get to the end of an explanation where I'm trying to show them teaching diagrams and to tell them about what's needed and how the surgery might go. And they'll say, yeah, that's what the other surgeon said too, you know. And so I know at that point that that they're looking around to see who do they think that they can trust. Um, There's high expectations from the patients about the quality and the level of care that they'll be given there. They don't tolerate complications very well. And it's really good if up front you can be sure you talk about the things that could possibly happen um, and explain to them all the things that you're going to do to try to prevent any of that from happening, but to let them know that it could happen. Um, interestingly, there's also a very low health education. Now, the people are educated that are the, the Emiratis, the nationals in our country, um, but, but their public health and health awareness and health education um, is, is not um, as much as you think it might be. There's a difference in corporate community. And so your medical colleagues and the size of your team is going to be different. If you're at a teaching hospital, it's going to look more like this. And we were at a teaching mission hospital. And so we had a lot of cross-interdisciplinary times where we would meet together and do morning report. We'd meet together, do doctor's devotions across all those disciplines. We'd go out and have our picture taken, um, that type of thing. And so that... Um, was a team in that world. In in a non-teaching hospital, your your corporate community is smaller, and the way you function is different. It's more like a hospital-based private practice, and so these colleagues become very dear and very important to you. But it's a, it's a smaller team. Surgical care. In Africa, there's limited resources and medications, but there's often adequate equipment and adequate facilities. And in the Middle East, there's modern facilities, but there's also uh, a desire to um, be as economical as possible with medications or with consumables and resources. And um, the hospital watches that as well as the insurers watch that. And so there's some similarities there. Pathology can be broad and very in both places. It presents late, often in Africa. Sometimes it's not even surgical by the time it presents. In UAE, um, it's very, you know, sometimes it presents early and you're able to help do something. Um, but sometimes it can come very late. There's, in Africa, in our setting, particularly in our rural area, there's a significant percentage of urgent or emergent cases. Not as many electives. In, in Middle East, often it's elective cases and not as many of those urgent ones. So, broad scope of practice in um, Africa with fewer specialists. And then in uh, the Middle East, the competition impacts your scope of practice and what you are able to do because there are more specialists available in the various disciplines. And the patients desire the most highly trained people to do whatever surgery they need. Um, the common things that we saw, I've just tried to make a little bit of a list. And in Africa, we saw a lot of trauma. And that might be accidents, road traffic accidents, motorcycle accidents, um, animal-related injuries or assaults, um, things like 
stab wounds or bows and arrows, um, burns, things like that, because there were so many open fires. Uh, we saw a lot of esophageal and gastric cancer at Tenwick because the it was very common in our area, and there's a lot of research and all going on um, about that in in our area. There were many urgent cases, and they were a little bit different than what I see in the Middle East. That we saw a lot of sigmoid bobulus. I'm going to show you some pictures of some of those in a moment. Um, we saw perforated viscous, whether it was from typhoid or perforated ulcers. Um, and then appendicitis, not as much as I see in UAE, but we saw appendicitis and many, many, many abscesses, many, many, many wound issues. Um, elective cases there were primarily thyroids, goiters, hernias, gallbladders were rare. Often gallbladder obstruction, biliary obstruction turned out to be uh, biliary cancer of some sort. In the Middle East, there's more electives. Often that's in our hospital, um, cholelithiasis, you know, for lap coles, uh, hernias of all sizes and shapes and places and, and various tumors, lumps and bumps. Um, and then anorectal problems. We see quite a lot of hemorrhoids, uh, anal fistulas, anal fissures. Uh, the Urgent cases are fewer, but the ones that we see are mostly appendicitis or gallbladder, uh, acute cholecystitis that needs operations, and um, abscesses, certainly perirectal abscesses and that kind of thing. We are not currently doing cancer surgery at our center because there are specialized centers for that around our um, area. The facilities I think you're going to find are very good and very adequate in both areas. So Operating Room Kenya is well equipped, has um, plenty of, of good equipment and laparoscopic equipment. Operating Room in the Middle East, same. It's going to have adequate facilities and staff and resources. Same with endoscopy. In, um, you, in Kenya, because of the significant amount of esophageal cancer, there was a gastroenterologist who ended up coming and then others came after him. And there's a tremendous amount of interventional gastroenterology being done there for dilations and um, stent placements and various things. In UAE, we do endoscopy as well, and it's primarily screening endoscopy for um, upper and lower um, scopes and so I'm getting ready to show some pretty graphic pictures and if there's anybody that's squeamish I showed some of those pictures one time and somebody fainted and had to leave the room so I'm just now giving you a warning <laughs> if anything's too graphic please leave just like cover your eyes or you know put your head down or something so hopefully it won't be too bad we'll go fast um, head to toe um, some of these things are going to be out of the scope of practice of general surgery, but when I first got there, these were the, all the things that we were doing. Um, for airway, we saw a lot of little babies that had airway issues from foreign bodies. We saw people that had Kaposi's sarcoma and complications from AIDS that would have just terrible um, oropharyngeal tumors, and they might require an urgent airway. You definitely want to do that in a controlled environment. You definitely want to do that with anesthesia help and trained help all around and have the, all the equipment ready for a, a, a 
crash um, airway if that becomes necessary. Uh, when we have foreign bodies, often that's in a little child, and so that needs to be done under anesthesia. You need at least two anesthesia personnel in the in the room when it's a little one because there is just so much to pay attention to, and these these procedures can take a while. You want to be prepared. You want to have good conversation and understanding of each other um, with different accents and confirming that everybody understands, okay, here's what we're going to do first, and then here's what we're going to do next and be prepared as you do rigid bronchoscopy we had amazing equipment that we often wrote to some of our supporters to say the rigid bronchoscopes that you've given to us have saved so many lives and we are so thankful for them and of course sometimes from time to time graspers or things like that break and so being able to keep that equipment on hand and have a spare in case something goes wrong and so they they sometimes follow everything batteries coins um, leaves peanuts who knows what all can be down in these little bitty tiny baby airways if it's front on like this in a big round circle of a coin that's swallowed you know it's in the esophagus sometimes you can get a, a foley catheter past it blow up the balloon a little bit and pull it back into the mouth and that's only if you have a fairly older very compliant child most of the time you want these um, patients to be under full gen- general anesthesia and totally asleep. And so one of the other areas that we um, took on there in Kenya was head injuries. We saw a lot of road traffic accidents, and sometimes people would have head injuries, subdural hematoma, epidural hematoma. In the early years, we didn't have CT scan nor yet. Um, and so we had various ways of trying to discern what was necessary to do. And there are certain locations that you that you do burr holes, and it can make a profound difference in seeing people um, be able to recover from uh, subdural hematoma. Um, thankfully, several years into it, God sent Dr. Will Copeland, who's a neurosurgeon who's now serving there uh, at, at Tenwick, and he definitely upped the game in being able to take care of these types of things. The um, depressed open skull fracture is something that, will need immediate attention to be washed out and closed. Perhaps that skull needs to be elevated. Um, Knowing all of those requirements and being able, even on x-ray, if you don't have CT scan, to be able to measure how far it's depressed and to to paying attention to where it's located so that you won't be over critical veins and blood vessels that you could cause something even worse. We saw a fair amount of chest trauma. This unfortunate gentleman had been um, had been bored by a buffalo, and so he had a, a gaping chest wound, had a wound up here under his clavicle, and then there on his arm. And so we are thankful that he didn't have a major vascular injury, and so we were able to um, stitch him back up and put it in a chest tube and take care of his wounds, and he was able to recover. All right, so now on to general surgery, which is really the only area of training for for me. Um, any abdominal uh, surgery around the world, you're going to ask all the same things. You're going to look, is this an acute abdomen? Is this a pain that has started very recently? And what is the history? Where is the pain? Where did it start? Where is it now? Um, any diagnostic 
imaging that you can do is important, x-rays or CT scans, um, laboratory values, and paying attention just to all of that to make the diagnosis. Here you see some free air into the diaphragm that could be um, from a perforated ulcer or even perforated typhoid. This is what perforated typhoid looks like. It's often a little blue circle in the terminal ileum, and sometimes you can get away with just carefully resecting that little hole and primarily repairing it. Sometimes you need to resect a section of the small bowel, and usually that's uh, in the ileum. can be other places. Small bowel volvulus, there's not a standard x-ray um, that you can tell, oh, this is definitely small bowel volvulus. So you have to pay attention to, to the um, story. Often it's a very acute onset. Often there's very much nausea and vomiting with it. If you are able to get a CT scan, you can definitely tell on that. If there's ischemia, the pain may be out of proportion to exam, much as it is with mesenteric ischemia. So really learning how to do a very good clinical exam and take a good history is important. Sigmoid volvulus is a different story. Sigmoid volvulus, you definitely see a twist to the sigmoid colon. It's this big inverted U. Um, here's a little bit better picture of it, and often it comes down to that bird beak picture on x-ray. Um, you can reduce these if they are fairly new. <laughs> if it's just happened and it's something that the patient may give you a history that makes you think it's been happening and then correcting without intervention. So you can do a rigid proctoscope. We, we usually couldn't get quite far enough up to that peritoneal reflection to untwist the bowel. And so sometimes we'd use a chest tube and gently pass that beyond where we could see at the end of the rigid proctoscope to, to untwist the bowel. Or if you have a colonoscope and you can um, be able to do that. These almost always come at night for some reason. They're almost always um, not during regular working hours. And so if that person can be detoured and you want to admit them to the hospital, do a bowel prep, and then resect. And here you can see, um, again, thanks to Dr. White for that picture, that is a huge sigmoid colon that's loofing down the table much bigger than the ones that you're going to typically see in people. And that, that extra amount of sigmoid on a very short mesentery made this a fairly common problem. So sigmoid volvulus, sometimes you can detour. If it is a compound volvulus, it's going to often have some dead bowel involved. Um, and then usually it is the colon that is the, the portion of the dead bowel. So here you see it's intertangled. It's called ileocecal knotting a lot of times these days. And um, you, you usually are, well, for anything that looks like this, you're going to have to resect. And maybe you're going to have to come back. Depends on how sick your patient is. Maybe what all you need to do at that point, if they are very unstable, is just get that dead bowel out of there, leave them in discontinuity, and come back later after they're resuscitated and, um, and doing a little bit better. Sometimes they're stable enough, you can go ahead and do the surgery during the first surgery. We saw a lot of unusual cases of bowel obstruction in Africa. I definitely haven't seen this in the Middle East, but worms and papaya seeds. And papaya seeds can, can all accumulate down in the rectum. Usually you're able to, to clean those out, you know, 
um, pretty well from below. But for worms, if, if it's caused a significant obstruction and if it's been there long enough, it may need to be resected with surgery. And so this little boy had a small bowel with just a impacted worm ball that you could feel um, before surgery. And so we would go proximal to that area where the worms are impacted, open the small bowels with uh, enterotomy, and then use Babcock's to go and take the worms out. And so this is Ascaris um, that tend to make this type of obstruction. So that was quite a, a lot, and they're all still usually moving around in there in the bowl. Or you can have a tapeworm. And so this uh, this particular night, this was during my time as a resident there, and you can see my face. It's, I'm like, I had been asking them, please get the NG tube working. It's just not working. It's not decompressing the stomach, you know, whatever we were doing. I, I, I couldn't understand why the stomach wouldn't decompress. So they decided to pull out the NG tube, and then they just kept pulling, kept pulling, and the the tapeworm was just going. And um, back in the day when Dr. White and Dr. Mike Chuff, who's now the president of CMDA, were both there as general surgeons, they used to have a competition of how far across the room they could pull that tapeworm without it breaking. And so this is the courtesy of Dr. Mike Chuff, where we got he got the worms long enough that he could spell out the the thing on the blue tile. So, yeah, those I haven't seen in UAE. And, of course, after you do the surgery for these patients, you want to give them the medical treatment for getting rid of whatever parasite that they have and then and, and then give that same treatment to the whole family um, and then get them on a regular schedule of that kind of medication. Intussusception is very heartbreaking in Africa often. It has a very high mortality rate, as high as 25% sometimes in some places. And it often presents late. The patient is often already very unstable, and you often find that you can't just reduce it. Uh, it's fine to try the air contrast enema beforehand, and if that doesn't work, then proceed um, rapidly to surgery. Um, this would, of course, require a resection. This one um, probably can be reduced, and then the patient can be observed and watched postoperatively. Of course, they can reoccur um, because the lead point of whatever has caused that is causing a problem there. And so that was um, something that we saw fairly often, and we're really trying to educate parents if, if the baby is crying in a certain way or has this really um, so much significant pain, please bring them to the hospital. And then, of course, trauma. Trauma you see worldwide, and it's a huge, major cost of life and limb. But in Africa, if you've got four or five passengers on each motorcycle and two motorcycles collide, you've got eight or nine patients right there all coming in your emergency department at the same time, and then some of them can truly be heard. So worldwide trauma is an issue. That's true wherever you are. I find in our part of the world the, the trauma has to go to a government-designated trauma center. It's not, you're not allowed to send it to the private hospitals. And the, the um, speed limits and traffic regula regulations are very well-controlled and, um, you know, it, it, 
you just don't see the types of accidents that we saw in Kenya. Um, in Africa, God provides. It, it, this uh, next patient was a businessman. He would close up his business, was walking home, and he was accosted by robbers. And they had those big machetes and just did a number on him and cut all over his body, especially his face, his hands and arms. He had one thumb that was com- almost completely severed. And... <clears throat> He had many cuts around his eyes that thankfully did not um, damage his eye. But at this particular time, there was a hand surgeon from Minneapolis or Duluth, Minnesota, who was there. And she was able to spend a couple hours or more reattaching his thumb. There was an eye surgeon there who was able to stitch up all of his eye um, eyelid injuries and facial injuries. And then there was me as a resident and a medical student. And we were working on the places where the cosmetic result didn't matter quite as much. But it, there was a or, visiting orthopedist there that took care of his broken leg. It just really impacted me to realize God knew this was going to happen to this man and that these visitors needed to be at our hospital during that time to care for him. And it's just so remarkable to see those kinds of things happen over and over again. We also saw injuries from um, the arrows that would be shot back and forth when there were arguments over land or cattle typically were the most common things and the face of trauma is kind of the face of trauma worldwide you know he's very combative and and probably had had a little alcohol before he came there so you can either see big arrows sticking out of his arm like this one and be able to take it out fairly easy or you can see this tiny little four millimeter cut little bit of blood trickling down and your x-ray shows that that arrow may be completely through the liver and who knows what else. This was before we had a CT scanner. But thankfully, again, God provided and we were able to get this out without a lot of injury to other internal organs and a lot of bleeding or damage to his liver. This young man was a teacher and he had been shot over some land dispute and um, his x-ray also looked like this could potentially go deep. It could potentially be difficult to get it out and to not cause an injury to his brain. And so as we discussed with him, and he's an educated young man, we were able to explain, we don't know how this is going to turn out. We don't know if you're going to wake up. We don't know if you're going to be able to communicate. We just don't know. We're going to pray and ask God to help us and to do the best that we can. Um, And we shared with him about Jesus, and he gave his life to Jesus, not knowing what might be there for him. Thankfully, we were able to get it out. He didn't suffer um, brain damage that was obvious anyway, and he was so joyful and just rejoicing, not only over the physical healing that he had gotten, but the eternal hope that he had, because this bad event had happened in his life. You know, infection is rampant, um, certainly in Africa. That's very true. And these pictures are pretty awful. I'm sorry for them. <laughs> this was necrotizing fasciitis that came from a, a fistula that had developed after acute 
appendicitis and it tracked all the way up posteriorly to the scapula and all along his chest and this man was with us for several weeks and months as we debrided his wound and um treated him, you know, with the uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics and resuscitation that he needed and then did multiple skin grafts to cover this whole area for him. And he also came back later and brought us a, a little gift and said thank you because of the the care and the healing that he had received there. And he just really also made an impression on me. I said this little girl, Chepnitich, she was burned over about 50% of her body when her, her brother set fire to her clothes. And she was with us definitely for, I think, of two and a half or three months. And she required daily debridements and... Um, and very painful dressing changes and then many series of graftings and she always looked so sad. And it, one night I went by there to see her. She was going to be soon able to be discharged to go home. And um, she had had her mother bring these gourds that somebody had made from the village that were very decorated. And they wanted to give them to me to say thank you. And it was the first time that I saw this little girl smile. And to say thank you for the care. She reached out her little hand and shook my hand because that's the common greeting in Kenya. And, you know, those are the reasons that we go and that we do and that we serve. And so for not only for general surgery, but for so many more disciplines, primary care, internal medicine, um, any of the specialties of internal medicine, all these surgical disciplines, all of these are needed on the mission field. And that joy in helping people is universal. It, it um, you know, if you care for a patient and help them during their time of need, that's going to lead to favor and the ability to have a relationship. And, you know, sometimes the way they say thank you differs. In the top picture there, they've given me incredible um, flowers and chocolates in the Middle East. And then in Kenya, this mom brought uh, chicken from their, from their farm to um, give as a thank you gift. And so I think it's it's amazing how the the ability to care for a patient can bring that joy and can bring that relationship. So one last story. This was Dominic. And Dominic came to us after a motorcycle accident, and he had had a bad leg injury. And we worked for a couple weeks to try to save his leg. Ultimately, he had to have an amputation above the knee. And I was pretty devastated, honestly. I knew that he was the oldest son of a single mom. And he had gotten that motorcycle so that he could, um, and I think it was a rented one, so that he could uh, take passengers back and forth and make money to earn the money for the school fees for the younger kids to go to school. And so I thought, Lord, she's a single mom. What Now what income is she going to have? And, and why weren't we able to save this young boy's leg? And he also was very sad and discouraged. And as we did his various surgeries and then end up having to do an amputation and then he even had um, a wound infection after that he was with us so long but as he was there a long time the nurses really 
loved on him and the chaplains came by and shared Jesus with him and people talked to him and loved him every single day. It wasn't just us as the doctors rounding. It was the whole team. And he gave his life to Jesus. And I noticed a significant change to his demeanor and to his hope. I ended up seeing him a couple months later, three months later, and he was getting fitted for his prosthesis. And then I saw him um, working with that after that and realized that God had a different plan. In my definition, that surgery was a failure. We didn't save his leg. But for God, he wanted Dominic to come to know him. And that mother who then came to know him, and hopefully those other younger children will as well. And so that's our hope, to go and to serve and to bring that light to the people that we are able to serve. How is God calling you? I hope you'll use this weekend to be open, to seek, and to listen to God as he um, puts on your heart what he has for you. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. And if there's any questions, I'm happy to take those. Yes. Thanks, Dr. Cruz. Awesome talk. A uh, question for you. At Tenwick, was it big enough when you were there that you were not constantly placed in an uncomfortable position of doing surgeries way outside of your scope of practice? Or yeah, it, if you were, were you like trying to video conference with somebody or you just had members open in front of you? Yeah, and, and definitely, you know, think about from 2007 to now. Now you can get everything you need on your on your iPhone, but the iPhones came out that year, I think. And so we didn't have that at that time. Thankfully, I, I had colleagues around me. And I think as going as a newer um, doctor out of training, I wasn't young, but I was a new surgeon. And I wanted to go somewhere where there were these experienced people who had been there 10 years, you know, and really could help me when I got in a bind. So I had lots of support and colleagues that were there to help who had done those kinds of things before. And then from there, from that time to now, it's amazing. There's a pediatric surgeon, orthopedist, neurosurgeon, um, visiting ENTs. There's so many specialists there now that are available that that would not be the situation. Um, but we definitely did. Email back and forth when there were something that could wait and be elective, we would do that and get recommendations from people from our, our training institutions or maybe others who had come and visited and knew our environment. Um, so, and, and I think I just provided in that way as well. We did. We could refer to Nairobi or to Eldoret um, when needed. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. So question that I may not say quite perfectly, but the question is um, for going to the Middle East and wanting to serve the women, particularly the Muslim women, how does that look different for things like surgery or things like discipleship or, or mentoring and that kind of thing? Um, for 
Muslim women in our area, many of them only want to be cared for by female physicians. And so almost all the OBs on our staff are female. And then in many of the other disciplines, we have both male and female physicians available because some women prefer that. Sometimes it's the husband who wants that on behalf of his wife. And so I find that many women come to me saying, I I wanted, I've looked everywhere for a female surgeon. And they're often embarrassed to share what their problem is, especially if it's an anorectal problem. Um, and so I think that, that there's, there's not any ability to, you know, to be as open with everything as, as there was in Kenya. But I think that we can show that love and compassion by helping care for them in whatever problem they do have and, and reassuring them and then taking them through whatever treatment course is for them. And so I think that's how a relationship starts. Um, what we are hoping in our part of the world is that we can turn a, a medical encounter that ends up more being a relationship and then maybe visit them in their home or um, get to know them through multiple visits and, and build a relationship that, that can then go deeper. Does that answer what you're looking for? All right, thank you all so much. You've been very attentive, and I'll be around if there are any questions. I'm happy to to stay around a little bit. Thank you.